Good news, good news, good news. Welcome to this Good News Friday edition of The Bottom Line. We've got a couple of great updates to share with you about the way God is moving in certain areas. You know, it's interesting. When I think about the good news that we have in the culture right now, I think about the good news. I mean, as a matter of fact, uh, I'm old enough to remember, as many of you are, that uh, there was a, uh, a, back in the old days, as they called it, um, there was a, uh, a, a couple different. There were a couple different translations. Kenneth Taylor, uh, who kind of became the man at Tyndale House Publishers, um, was behind a, something called the Living Bible. And if you remember, it was it was a paraphrase. It was not a translation. Basically, what he did was he took the Word of God and said, "This is how I share the Bible with my kids in the evening or in family devotions." We don't read. King James or whatever, you know, and at the time in the 1960s, the Revised Standard Version hadn't come out yet. The New Living uh, Translation hadn't come out yet. The New International, there are a lot of different styles of, of Bible study, Bible reading, et cetera, et cetera. I've been finding myself reading the English Standard Version more than not, more often than not of late. But when it came to reading, then when we got to the Living Bible, someone decided, hey, we should publish this, and they did. And all of a sudden, the Living Bible paraphrase became extremely popular because it was the idea was, um, you know, to to have the opportunity to uh, kind of share this in a way that this is the way we kind of talk about it. Now, there was a potential danger, of course, with using a paraphrase. First, there was the full uh, Bible cover to cover, which was called the Way. And then there was a New Testament version only called Reach Out, which was what they were trying to reach out to young people with. The Jesus movement was starting to happen. It was very exciting. And then there was the uh, the Good News for Modern Man translation, which is kind of funny because it had the stick figures and stuff like it. Was kind of, if you remember that one, you do. But I remember that as one of the first copies of the Word of God that I was able to begin to kind of latch on to in terms of memorizing God's word. You know, there's a ministry called Faith Comes by Hearing. I mean, there's there are lots of different other apps. There's the Uversion app and, and a variety of different other ways you can actually hear uh, the word of God recorded. As a matter of fact, one of my favorite things to do is just to go on to BibleGateway.com and they have a couple different versions of the Bible. You can go through it chronologically. You can go through it in a one-year format where there's a little Old Testament, a little New Testament, whatever. And then they have an audio version that's read by Max McLean of Fellowship for Performing Arts, which uh, Max is a regular contributor to the Bottom Line show. And matter of fact, his mom lives in Tustin. He's one of our, one of our Bottom Line listeners. So many ways you can consume God's Word. But one of the things I loved about that paraphrase, and that was basically the Bible that I read from junior high all the way through high school. As a matter of fact, my first radio job, I was still in college, and I was working in Central California, and I remember going to a Bible study at um, Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. And that's what I had. I had a copy of the Living Bible. It, it, was, uh, it didn't have the pictures on it anymore. It was just the Living Bible. And I remember bringing it to a Bible study, and the only interaction I had with anyone in that group was a guy telling me that wasn't the Word of God, and I should come back next time with an actual Bible. And needless to say, I never went back. And if you're listening, whoever that person is, I did become a Christian. Actually, I was one when I had that. <laughs> I've been ordained as a minister. But the, the point was, there were so many people who got hung up on the translation. But I can still remember my pastor, Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God your needs and don't forget to thank him for, your an- for his answers. 
It was the first passage of Scripture I remember memorizing. I did learn the 23rd Psalm, but that's something everybody in the third grade Sunday school class had to do to get a free copy of the Bible, right? So I remember hearing that. I remember memorizing that. And then as I got older, it was easier to memorize other verses, John 3.16, Jeremiah 29.11, Romans 8.28, etc., etc., Invariably, though, it got to the point where I thought, well, wait a minute, what if I am memorizing this stuff, but I'm just getting a bunch of verses, I don't get the whole story. When I was in my early 20s and a college student back in Southern California working at a local radio station in town, I remember being a part of my church uh, where uh, we had a guy who was a high school teacher, a couple years older than me. He was the He had left teaching because the teaching world was kind of going through an upheaval, he decided to become a youth pastor. And so he was the youth pastor at our church, handled the high school and junior high. And I told him I wanted to help him out by volunteering with the high school kids. He said, this is great. You know, we'd love to have you. And so he said, what I want you to do is I want you to start a Bible memory group. And I said, what do you mean Bible memory? He said, well, just that. I mean, you take a copy of scripture and you commit it to memory, but then you sit down with the kids and challenge them to find a book of the Bible to memorize. Now, by then, I graduated to the New International Version. I know, I know, some people are like, NIV, that's not the Bible. Well, anyway, that was the first real study Bible I had. I tore that thing up. And in reading through the NIV, it was hardbound, that kind of uh, uh, burgundy type of cover. He looked at me and said, Pastor, his name was Dan here. He said, "Um, why don't you take Romans chapter 6 and memorize it? And then I'll get some kids that if you can come down one afternoon a week to the church, uh, you can meet with these kids. And basically what you do is everyone just holds each other accountable. Pick a chapter in the Bible. It doesn't have to be a whole book. Uh, He picked Romans 6 because that was a bit of a challenge to get Paul's ideology. It was one of the best exercises I ever had. And eventually I learned Romans chapter 6. I learned 1 John chapter 1. I learned Ephesians chapter 5 and 6 at one point. I mean, it kept going on from there. And I found that as I memorized scripture, it was a pretty easy assignment. You just drill and drill and drill and drill until you work on it. But when you know it from memory, it's a lot easier to study and dig deeper because you don't have to keep referring back to the pages. So why do I bring this up? Well, there's two reasons. First of all, and this one may be a little more daunting than the other, the first reason for memorizing Scripture is there may potentially come a time in our culture. Okay, let me back that up. I didn't want to be too maudlin, but there will come a time. If you're living in California, if you're living in Colorado, one of the more liberal states in the Union, there will come a time when the law will collide with the gospel, when the laws of the land will be written in such a way that the Bible won't be banned per se. Remember, though, during the revolutions that happened in the Soviet Union with communism and everything like that, the church didn't go away. It was just taken over by the state. Many European nations, there's a Church of England, the Church of Scotland, the Church of Germany. I mean, there are different churches that are sponsored by the state. And as a result, the church has to play by the state's rules. There are enough Christians, I believe, or people who profess faith in Christ in the United States right now to where if the United States government passed a law that said you cannot talk about sin, you cannot talk about disparagingly about people who are transgender or homosexual, this, that, and the other thing. And we now will have authority as the state to uh, look at 
everything that passes through. Remember, there was a bill, Joe Dallas came on from Genesis Biblical Counseling a couple of years ago. There was a bill here in California that would have made it illegal for anyone to profit off of any sort of product that would encourage someone or coerce or force someone to renounce homosexuality. And that went far enough to say, if you were, say, for example, part of a counseling ministry, you believed in biblical counseling, that was Joe's deal. And you wanted to talk about ways that somebody with unwanted same-sex attraction could get rid of that same-sex attraction, you could not charge the people who were coming to your event for that ministry. Now, worse things have happened. It would not be the end of the world if people doing ministry work couldn't charge for the ministry they were doing, but it would mean they'd have to be creative with fundraising. And then the states would come after you for, oh, your 501c3 status is stripped. And it would really be a a, a bit of a strain on the church. It wouldn't be an insurmountable problem, but it would be a strain. Well, interestingly enough, there is a man right now who is making a name for himself by stressing the fact that Bible memorization, which is going to become more necessary for people who might wind up not getting a copy that the state approves of, of the whole word of God, we need to hide this stuff in our hearts. And Tom Meyer is a professor of Bible. Uh, He has been a professor at Shasta Bible College in Reading for quite some time. And once he got to 20 complete books, remember I was talking chapters, right? In the book of Ephesians, chapter five, chapter six, book of Romans, chapter six, um, I got somewhere with some of the Psalms, but not all the way through. Tom Meyer, there are 66 books in the Bible, and Tom has memorized nearly a third of them. So if you have that in your heart and you have that as a talent, is it a novelty or does it inspire others to do the same? I want to talk about why Bible memorization is making headlines and the idea that it takes not only that long to learn it, but then to be able to share with other people may just be the best evangelism tool the church in the 2020s and the 2030s has to offer. We'll talk about that on the other side of this break as the bottom line continues. You can protect against market volatility without investing all your money into bonds. Wilson Financial has simply better alternatives. The last 12 months, there has been almost $1.7 trillion invested in investment-grade bonds. This move to safety locks up money for a long time of guaranteed low returns. Why? Market volatility. Well, my comment is why go with low earnings for a long time when you can get great earnings with a solid real estate-backed investment paying you 6% over the next three years. After three years, you can invest in another option, or you can do what most of our investors do and reinvest in another one of our new exclusive 6% accounts. This strategy gives you the best of both options without settling for many years of low returns. Our 3D Money 6% account pays you great interest while you're not subjecting yourself to market volatility. Call 800-696-9970, 800-696-9970, or visit kbrightradio.com slash Wilson Financial and ask about Dennis Wilson's exclusive real estate-backed 6% investment account, Wilson Financial Services, for simply better alternatives. Welcome back to The Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh, and we're talking Bible memorization. This is a good news story because Tom Meyer, who's a professor of Bible at Shasta Bible College in Redding, California, has earned the moniker of the Bible memory guy. And here's Bible memory man, excuse me. Reason is he has committed 20 books of the Bible to memory. 
and he has gone to various venues all across the country to actually um, to, to share what he knows. About two weeks ago, well, October the 15th, he went to the Institute of Creation Research Discovery Center. He and six other Bible memory experts got together, and they performed what was called the Great Recital. They wanted this to coincide with the Feast of Tabernacles, you know, when the nation of Israel would gather together and they would have a celebratory reading from the Torah. So basically what they did is they got the great recital together and they read parts of the scripture, but the key was they did this from memory. So they did the New Testament, all 27 books, all 180,000 words. So it's Tom Meyer and uh, six others who uh, they, they chose not to bring in trained actors. They found, quote-unquote, regular people who fear God and his word. Uh, they found Scott Firebaugh, who's a retired school teacher, uh, Be- Brittany Schlichter, a church secretary, uh, Tim Frud, who's a podcaster and a journalist. And basically, they put together, uh, bas- they all used different translations, whichever one they were most uh, familiar with. Um, Frud, for example, has the had the task rather of presenting both the Gospel of Luke and the Epistle to the Galatians. He said, for example, remember I mentioned there's 180,000 words in the New Testament. 25,000 of them are in Luke, and to recite it from memory takes over two hours. <laughs> Amazing and yet so inspiring. How many people would hear the Word of God? Scripture tells us faith comes by hearing and hearing comes from the word of God and would hear those words spoken from memory and then it would inspire them. It would inspire them to do more. I'm reminded of uh, in the scene in The Chosen when we see Jesus, you know, giving the Sermon on the Mount, for example. You remember that scene? It was in the earlier, it's either season one or season two where Jesus is giving the Sermon on the Mount but as he's preparing for it, he's actually rehearsing it. And there were a lot of people who said, wait a minute, why would Jesus, why would the Son of God not just get up and speak everything perfectly? You know, and, and I, I appreciate how Dallas Jenkins responded to that criticism. He said, you know, he's fully God, and he's fully man. We know that he spent a lot of time praying to his father. The question that we would have is why? Why would he pray? Why would he spend so much time talking to God if he's part of the Trinity? Was that the humanity side of him that needed to? Jesus, fully God and fully man, did he speak perfectly? He wasn't prophesying at birth. He kind of came up through the ranks the way we did. Does it make sense that Jesus would potentially need to, quote, unquote, rehearse or run through the Sermon on the Mount? Well, that's a good question. I think it's a fair question as well, especially when you consider that those of us then who hear these words can you imagine what it must have been like to hear the Sermon on the Mount the first time? You're just rank and file. Jesus is going out there doing his thing, and next thing you know, here he is. And he's talking about this. And he's he's just being Jesus, right? How amazing is that? And you hear these words, and the words transform you. This is the thing about memorizing Scripture and sharing it with other people that is so powerful. Let's not forget, faith does come by hearing. Hearing comes by the word of God. And the word of God, when spoken, does not come back void. If you know someone in your world who says, you're talking about something and it might be something of a negative nature, they say, don't don't even talk, don't even put that out there. 
Don't put those words in the universe because they might come true. My words don't have that impact. Your words don't have that impact. Only the words that are infused with the word of God. The word of God has that impact. But me saying, oh, I hope that guy doesn't get a flat tire, that, that's not going to happen because I said that. <laughs> but there's something about the seven rank-and-file folks memorizing the entire New Testament and then presenting it at the great recital that's very awe-inspiring. We have a link for the information about that up at thebottomlineshow.com. It was a great event, I'm sure. Well, as this Good News Friday continues, a great report coming out of a part of the world where there's been a lot of heartache, a lot of bloodshed, and a lot of people of the Christian faith aren't getting the headlines they necessarily deserve. Our good friend Leela Gilbert with Family Research Council uh, has a piece up at a place called the Washington Stand. It's a brand new publication online that I'd never heard of before. Uh, Leela is Senior Fellow for International Religious Freedom and Coalitions Coordinator at Family Research Council. And she has great news coming out of the Islamic Republic with regard to the way Christians are standing up for our faith, especially young women. We're going to talk about that coming up next as The Bottom Line continues. Welcome back to this Good News Friday edition of The Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh, and I love the way God works. I love the way in his economy we see things that look like they could be harrowing and awful. Um, And at the same time, God gives us the vision. It's kind of almost like those infrared glasses, you know, type of things where you're night vision. That's what I was thinking of, where you put on the glasses and it's totally dark but the vision is changed because of what you are now able to see because of what the treatment is with the lens and this, that, and the other thing. And if you could think about this, how we as Christians can literally put on our night vision goggles in the darkness of the world that we're living in right now, and instead of seeing the darkness and being frustrated by it, instead of seeing the situation as hopeless or helpless, we as Christians can see what's happening in the world around us and see what God is doing. You know, if you've ever been in love, <laughs> you've ever had that moment where you're going to pick out a stone. I realize that there's a new generation of kids, uh, young people, my, uh, all three of my daughters who are married, are wearing engagement rings and wedding ring sets that are not the traditional diamond or diamond solitaire or the gold band or white gold band or whatever. They've kind of gone for stuff that looks really shiny and looks really beautiful, and they love them. I mean, they love their guys for getting them for them, but they aren't the traditional diamond, per se. But I remember, I mean, this is how old-fashioned I am. I'm kind of wandering into a little area here of (laughs) my family history. When Lisa and I were dating, and we realized that God was bringing us together. We went through some really foundational and formational things the first six months we were dating, and then was like, okay, this is it. We, we knew it was only a matter of time. And it took us a good year from that moment to get to the point where yours truly was finally down on one knee holding up a, an engagement ring. But when it came time to shop for the ring, there was no question we were going to look for a diamond. And I found a beautiful ring. It was custom made, and it was just a great fit and thank you to jenny over at south coast jewelers in um in uh south coast plaza area uh who did a fantastic job with their uh with making a custom uh, not only engagement ring but wedding ring for my wife I, i remember the first time shopping for a diamond for her and realizing that the best way to see how perfect the diamond was was to set it against a dark setting black velvet typically that's how you can see whether or not there are imperfections or whether or not it's a good diamond. And what's happening right now in Iran 
with the Islamic Republic and their abusive regime, I think gives us kind of a black velvet background to see what God is doing. And he's curating these diamonds in the rough uh, who are Christians. Leela Gilbert, our colleague and a good friend, known Leela for many years. She currently serves with the Family Research Council as the Senior Fellow for International Religious Freedom and the Coalitions Coordinator at FRC. She has a piece up at a publication called thewashingtonstand.com about what's happening. On an afternoon in mid-September, 22-year-old Masha Amini was viciously attacked in Tehran by Iran's so-called morality police. According to the Associated Press, Masha was, quote, severely beaten by the security forces in a van and was taken to the capital's Khazra hospital due to the severity of her injuries. Reports indicate that her death, ultimately, was due to a fracture of her skull due to heavy blows to her head. The reason for Masha's arrest and subsequent abuse is hard for us Westerners to fathom. She was attacked because she was not properly wearing a hijab a required-by-law head covering for all women, Muslim or not. Some of Masha's hair was exposed, and for this, she was beaten to death by the so-called morality police who were enraged at the infraction. Iran's authorities surely underestimated the surging anger that followed this attractive young woman's death. Defiant women, Leela writes, have publicly ripped off their hijabs, burned them openly in the streets. Angry men and boys are bravely marching alongside these women, fighting off the police and declaring their solidarity. The response of the regime has been vicious, even deadly, but has failed to quell the crescendo of chanted protests. In intense standoffs, the police and other authorities have been assaulted. Now, for decades, those of us who have reported on Iran's religious religious oppression have noted that the abuses of women and Christian converts are widespread. Why? Because both are perceived by religious leaders as threats to their radical Islamist cult, or Islamist cult, rather, which rules the country with male iron fists. But worst of all, in the mullah's eyes are former Muslims who have converted to Christianity. Farsi and Persian-speaking Christians who meet in house churches are illegal. They frequently suffer violent invasions, arrests, and sometimes even death. They are at least as proactive as Masha and likewise suffer severe abuse. Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty reported that in May 2022, one of the most powerful striking trends of the year before was the increased involvement of Iran's powerful Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps in the crackdown of Persian-speaking Christians. The IRCG was responsible for 12 of the 38 documented incidents of arrests of Christians or raids on their homes and house churches in 2021. Leela continues. Iranian Christian converts often point out that the harsh violence which takes place in the name of Islam, including the recent uproar over women's hijab violations, has deeply disillusioned young Muslims. Unsurprisingly, many of them have been introduced to Jesus and have converted to Christianity in ever-increasing numbers. To make matters worse for the regime, today's Christian conversions bring together two of the mullah's most despised rivals, courageous women like Masha and spiritually inspired Christian believers. It is widely reported that women comprise a substantial portion of Iran's house church leadership. In fact, one underground church overseer told the Washington Stand that seven of the 12 churches he works with are led by energetic, courageous women who are all converts from Islam. For the first time since 1979 in the Islamic Revolution, then during the recent demonstrations, Iran's Christians have publicly spoken out against the regime in an act of great courage. 300 Christian leaders have added their names to a declaration, and the declaration is posted at thebottomlineshow.com. What price will be paid by these 300 outspoken Christian signatories? 
cost for their courage could be excessive and perhaps even deadly. However, along with more than a million Iranian Christian believers, they are counting on a lasting and eternal reward, one that is not of this world. Great reporting there from our colleague Leela Gilbert today here on The Bottom Line. A Good News Friday story about 300 Christians, new Christians in Iran, who have signed a declaration. It's several paragraphs long. We'll post that whole thing at thebottomlineshow.com. But pray for our new brothers and sisters in Christ who are facing persecution, all because a 22-year-old woman, I mean, this is how God works in his economy. A 22-year-old woman dared to uh, defy the mullahs, take off her hijab, and when she, she was wearing it improperly, they said. So her hair was shown just a little bit. But that was enough to start a revolution. And God is using it to literally light a fire under the feet of Islamist or Islamist Muslims who are converting to faith in Christ and joining our kingdom. What's coming up next on the network comes to you tonight on the Bottom Line Show Extra at 7. Coming up next, pastor and author Scotty Smith. We're going to talk about First John coming up next as the Bottom Line continues. Been hurt in an accident and you're wondering if you should call Stephanie Cover of Cover Law. You must. That's why insurance exists, to cover accidents. So you should use it. Stephanie worked in the insurance industry for over 20 years and she knows their system, how to talk to adjusters, how they think, and how to get back from them all that you've lost. That could be wages, time, property, or anything else that the accident has taken from you. Every minute you wait hurts your chance to be made whole again, and Stephanie knows that the opposing insurance company is building a case against you, so time is a factor. Stephanie cares about the truth. She builds your case on a rock-solid foundation of honesty. She will give you a clear understanding of what to expect during the process, and Stephanie will ensure that the truth comes to light. If you or someone you know has been in an accident and you're not sure if you need an attorney, reach out to Stephanie Cover now at kbrightradio.com slash C-O-V-E-R. Well, today on The Bottom Line Show, we're going to take a look at a book of the Bible that gets overlooked, and yet it's probably, I would venture to guess, one of the most quoted books of the Bible uh, for everybody all throughout the course of the day. And the reason is there's so much about the love of God written in the epistle known as First John. And today here on The Bottom Line Show, I'm joined by Dr. Scotty Smith, who planted and pastored Christ Community Church in Franklin, Tennessee, was there for 26 years, uh, worked on the pastoral staff at West End Community Church as teacher in residence, and also served as adjunct faculty for Covenant Seminary, Westminster Theological Seminary, Philadelphia, Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando, and Western Seminary in Portland, Oregon. He's the author of numerous books, and uh, today we're going to discuss one of his latest, uh, a, a study guide of sorts, uh, on First John. It's simply called First John, Relying on the Love of God. And we've got a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. Scotty Smith, welcome to The Bottom Line Show today. Thank you, Roger. It's great to be with you on the uh, on the third coast, from the third coast, right here in Franklin, Tennessee. <laughs> the third coast. We were talking before we came on the air here about the fact that you've got the, the left coast or the west coast, then the east coast, and then all the New York and California transplants are kind of creating, you know, this this whole new move to the, the, the third coast, which is uh, Tennessee area, and it's a beautiful ter- beautiful uh, part of the country for, for sure. Hey, let's talk about First John for just a moment. I, I, I meant what I said, and I don't know if you have statistics uh-huh. in front of you or not. 
not. But I hear First John quoted more by pastors, by Christians. There's yeah. always something about, you know, we love because he first loved us or God made yeah. him who had no sin. It just keeps coming out. Uh, talk about why First John is so important. It, not that the Gospel of John isn't, but First John really has a special place in Christians' lives. Well, it, it really does. And I think it's important, especially as we remember that the author of the Gospel of John is the same author of the three epistles of John and the book of Revelation. So I think what makes makes each one of those books more understandable is in light of the others. And John the Apostle had such a profound experience of the love of God in his three years of life with the Lord Jesus en route to the cross. But it is a great book. It's written in a very specific context at a time when John's probably in his mid-70s. So he is a, a wise apostle and has a lot to say. There are some valuable lessons that we can pull from First John, and you've written a, a beautiful outline for us in the book called First John, Relying on the Love of God. We've got a link for this book up at thebottomlineshow.com, uh, part of this series of really practical Bible study books that uh, it gives us some, some tangible expressions of God's love, but in ways that we can impart with other people. Uh, the, the whole thesis of First John, really, the message, really, is, is, is that we are made for intimacy with God. And I know that that's a message that a lot of people need to hear some of us know it, but we don't always live like it. Why is it so important for us to know this, and why is it so easy for us to miss this part of God's character? Well, I think a lot of times we approach the study of Scripture primarily looking for truth, and that's not wrong whatsoever. But really, um, the, the nature of biblical revelation is it's good, it's true, and it's beautiful. Now, those aren't three different categories. It's just that, especially in a book like First John, you see this highly relational orientation that, that God doesn't just want to be understood in Jesus. He wants us to deeply know Him, and that's why I chose that one phrase out of First John. And so we know and can rely on the love God has for us. It's uh, deeply personal, it's corporate, but it is a book that pushes the envelope on this whole theme of am I coming alive to the love of God or just convinced about the truth of God? Mm. Mm-hmm. And and therein lies the rub. Dr. Scotty Smith with me today here on The Bottom Line. Uh, the book is called First John, Relying on the Love of God. It's a study guide with leader's notes, and we've got a link for it up at thebottomlineshow.com. Another concept that we learn about in First John is one that uh, kind of dovetails nicely off of what, the, what you just shared, the idea that Jesus' life is for us, but also is in us. And, and talk yeah. about how we, we need to understand the proper delineation between the two. Well, um, many folk who've grown up in a church like myself first encountered teaching about Jesus along this kind of line. Jesus came to show me the life I was made for, and if I work hard in following him, I'll come alive to that love, uh, as opposed to understanding that Jesus came principally to be our substitute to trust first before our model to follow. And First John, again, highlights union with Christ, which is, of course, is a theme that runs throughout the New Testament, that, that Jesus has done something for us even before his death. He fulfilled the law for us, and by his death upon the cross, he took the judgment we deserve, and now in his resurrection, the gift of the Spirit, he is living his life in us and through us. So 
central categories that we sometimes miss and therefore miss a lot of the beauty and the riches of the gospel. I'm talking with Dr. Scotty Smith today here on The Bottom Line about his powerful new study in 1 John. And as you're hearing our discussion today here on the program, and of course there's a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com, you may be asking the same question that I have been asking for the, I'll say at least for the past four or five years, uh, Scotty, and I would love for you to address this because I know you bring it up in in this new uh, study guide on 1 John. The fact that what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it yes. mean to, literally, the question that you, you uh, ask in this book, what does it mean to be a, someone who lives as children of light? Talk about how First John, 2,000 years ago, shows us what our, unfortunately, guys like George Barna have been telling us for the past year, saying, hey, there are a lot of people who are professing faith in Christ, but they're really not living as children of light. Well, and thank you, and that's just a great question, because at the, at the end of First John, you find this very bold statement of why he wrote the book, uh, in terms of affirming that life is in the Son, and we can know that we have eternal life. Well, eternal life, as defined in First John, and also in the Gospel of John, eternal life is not so much a quantity of life, but it's a quality of life. That we live forever is awesome, but, but eternal life is knowing God and His Son, Jesus, whom He has sent. And one of the burdens that John has as he writes First John is precisely along that line. He's writing, like I said, probably 40 years or so after the resurrection, and by that time some people have just gotten uh, accustomed to relating to a community of faith. And he just really wants to make a big distinction between there is a difference between knowing about Jesus and knowing Jesus. And what John does so beautifully is... This core reality of God's love lavished on us in Jesus, it really does change us. And he just says, if there's no change in the way you view God's uh, rule over your life, why would you claim to be enjoying his grace? So he's, he's just doing a good job of helping to press in what is the Christian life. Boy, that's, that's a reminder that we, we need to have, often and with great passion, kind of a, a, echoing the words of Martin Luther about, you know, the reason I preach the Gospels, because I need to hear it every yes. day. You know, each <laughs> of us does. Hey, let's talk about uh, another part. I mean, this is something that I think that uh, oftentimes, to your point about, you know, the difference between knowing Christ and, and having Christ, you know, in uh-huh. as well as for us, is how do you remain in Christ. I mean, how, how do we do so? And John addresses this once again with his 70 years of wisdom back 2,000 years ago. Talk about that, Scotty Smith, of what First John teaches. Yes, well, spirit. like I said, John, having written the Gospel of John, uh, received some of that firsthand knowledge in, in the Gospel of John 13 through 17, where Jesus says that you are to abide in me, you are to abide in my love. So in some ways, First John is, a, is an expansion, it's a recelebration of what it means to remain in Christ. So remaining in Christ, first of all, we, we did not earn our way into Christ, so we don't earn our way staying in Christ. But the theme of remaining, the theme of abiding, once again, are highlighting more of an organic union rather than putting any fear in my heart that I might not do enough to stay in Christ, or did I ever do enough to get in Christ? So the theme of remaining, one of the things John writes, and he does this in the book of Revelation as well, is to say this, that, look, have no fear. If you know Christ, you will 
absolutely endure to the end, but just make sure you do know Christ. And for John, Mm. that's the issue of, do you know how great your need was that Jesus alone can meet? You needed forgiveness and righteousness. You didn't need a second chance. So John is just really highlighting just how big grace is. In fact, grace rebukes us before it absolutely delights us because it says our need is so great, Jesus alone could meet it. Mm. That's powerful insight from Dr. Scotty Smith today here on The Bottom Line. I'm Roger Marsh. Scotty's new book on 1 John is called 1 John, Relying on the Love of God. And we've got a link for this book up at thebottomlineshow.com. As we continue, we're going to talk about hope. We're going to talk about the people who are kind of frustrated with the fact that they think, well, you know, Jesus is always being told to us as being the only way. Uh, How could it be just him? if scripture kind of defines him in different ways. We're going to talk about that too on the other side of this break as the bottom line continues in just a moment. Dr. Scotty Smith, my guest today here on the bottom line. I'm Roger Marsh. Scotty is the author of a brand new uh, resource, a a study guide of sorts called First John, Relying on the Love of God. Uh, If you are a pastor, if you're a Bible study leader, I think a half dozen guys at my church right now who can't wait to get their hands on this book, Scotty, and, uh, and use it for Bible study or small group. And it's important for us to, to, to take these steps here too. With all of your experience with the different seminaries you've taught at, the books you've written, the churches you've founded, I mean, you're, you're looking back now and saying, hey, you know what, with, with all of the, the, the wealth that I have here, was it I hate to say, was it easy to write a book like this? Was it? Was, I mean, because I'm sure you got so much information kind of swirling around in your head and your heart. Uh, you know, how it was probably more of a question of what do I leave out than what do I put in. Well, the the good news is, um, I had a wonderful spiritual father who was a seminary professor of mine, and then was a spiritual dad for 21 years. His name was Jack Miller at Westminster Seminary, and and Jack. Basically, he loved this book. He loved First John. In fact, he was the one that really highlighted this theme for me as one of his sons in the faith. That and and so we know and can rely on the great love God has for us. So I think that for me, uh, seeing some central themes in any book of Scripture makes it easier to stay on task and to listen to that theme and how it shows up in all the chapters. So this was a, a fun study guide. It was a study guide to write that really connected me, with, again, with how much my spiritual father taught me about that really there's nothing more than the gospel. There's just more of the gospel. Mm, and that. Uh, that just really comes through First John so profoundly. One of the key themes, we, of course, we pick up in a book like an epistle like First John is the theme of love, of course. But another uh, central point is, is the concept of hope, our need for it, and where we can actually find it. Talk about the transforming power of oh, hope that yes. we see in First John. Well, hope, you know, right in the middle of this book, you have this marvelous section beginning in the third chapter, when John really calls us calls us to a real visual reality. He says, behold, or consider how great the love is the Father has lavished upon us, that we should be called the children of God, and that is what we are. What we will be, we do not know, but we know when we see Jesus, we will be made like him. All who have this hope set themselves apart, purify themselves as he is pure. So think, Roger, this theme of hope, first of all, it needs to be understood as in Scripture, Hope is never a whim, it's never the crossing of fingers, it's not even just calculated desire. Uh, hope is seeing God's future promise to us and remembering it into the present. 
So mm-hmm. hope has a profound function of enabling me to have a certainty right now, not a cockiness, but a certainty that enables me to love my neighbor. It labels me, enables me to live on mission. And for John, the great hope that we have is, number one, that right now we are as loved by God as much as we ever will be because of the finished work of Jesus. Secondly, he will complete in us the good work he began. So that profoundly frees us to look outwardly. And hope is the expectation of what is certain. It's not a wish. It's not clicking your heels three times and hoping that God exactly, gets you back to heaven. Exactly. You know, well I love the way you put that, Scotty Smith. The book is called First John, Relying on the Love of God. And we've got a link for the book up at the thebottomlineshow.com. You know, there was a phrase that was very popular maybe 10, 15, even 20 years ago. Uh, it's all about Jesus. It's all about mm-hmm. him. It's all about God. And I think a lot of people took that to heart and said, sure, we get it. Mm-hmm. But in First John, that's kind of where we see the basis for this. And, and it's really more than just saying, okay, well, it's all about Jesus, so nothing else matters, but I don't really know what that means. Talk about what that means and how John kind of explains well, that for profound. us. Well, for, once again, for John, who wrote the Gospel and Revelation, uh, John has a super high Christology. In fact, in his Gospel, he actually starts in his first chapter kind of like a parallel with Genesis chapter 1, where, right. where John writes that Jesus was not created. In fact, Jesus created all things. And so to say that Jesus uh, alone is central or Jesus alone matters is just a way of saying when we really begin to see more clearly the person and the work of Jesus, then what matters to him will matter to us. And quite frankly, as creator and sustainer of all things, that includes everything. So to be Christ-centered actually will be to look at the world differently. It'll be, be to look at the world as those who want to steward the environment. It will be to live in the sphere of life in which God gave me my calling uh, as someone extending the presence of the resurrected Jesus. So really Christ-centeredness is Christ's comprehensiveness for the whole of life. Mm, and there's you write about in the book of that that whole preoccupation, if you will, with Jesus really is the antidote for spiritual warfare. It's the antidote for any of the pain that we experience in this life. And it, it should be our primary focus in the same way. My wife and I were just praying this prayer this morning, that our focus would be on Jesus as clearly as it was for Peter when he was walking on water. I mean, because that, there's... That, that, that's profound right there. And uh, uh, John himself, that would be his worldview. In fact, you see it even seven, eight, ten years later when he wrote Revelation at about age 84, he is so alive to the resurrected Jesus, and it compels him to encourage Christians to live in Rome, not just waiting to get out of this mess, but waiting expectantly for Jesus to finish making all things new so that we really do engage the culture, stay present, be good neighbors, live in love to God's glory until the day Jesus truly does come back. Scotty Smith is my guest today here on The Bottom Line. We're talking about his new book on 1 John. It's simply called 1 John, Relying on the Love of God. We've got a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. Scotty, one of the things that John writes about in 1 John, in the first of the three epistles that he wrote, uh, is the, uh, uh, the, the, the concept, of course, that eternal life is certain that we yes. as, as Christians can, can, take, can take it to the bank, as they say. Mm-hmm. And yet I'm seeing a growing number of people. I mentioned George Barna earlier. George is a regular on this program, and his statistical analysis of what's happening with people who are professing Christians, especially here in the United States, is, uh, I don't mind saying disappointing, but it's also horrifying 
to yeah. see that there, you know, for 176 million people who profess that they are Christians and believe in God, maybe about, you know, five or six percent of those people actually live this out. And they kind of start, it's Jesus and stuff, you know, in terms of, you know, trying to be trying to be so open to other people that they wind up giving equal platform to it. Something yeah. tells me, Scotty, and I would love you you to unpack this if you would. Something tells me that there are a lot of people who are accepting Christ as Savior and Lord, but they're not totally convinced that uh, John fourteen six is really accurate. Um, talk about how we can really know and what First John teaches us about that truth that's in the Well, uh, and apostle. of course, the, the passage you just quoted from John's Gospel, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, uh, the singularly. And for John... Uh, as he wrote his whole body of material, John understood that Christianity is absolutely, singularly the presentation by which uh, we can know the love of God in this life and the life to come. And yet the, the way in is narrow because we have to get so low. See, Jack Miller used to say, until grace insult you, it will never delight you. And I kind of referenced that a little bit earlier. And it means this, that our need is for forgiveness and righteousness. And Jesus gives us both. Now, that narrow way, however, is backed up by the promise of the God who first converted Abram, this pagan moon worshiper, the story in Genesis 12 through 17, and said to Abram, Abram, count the star, sand, and dust. So big will my family be eventually through the one that's going to come through the nation that I will make of you. Now, John, uh, again, about 10 years after he wrote First John, had this vision in Revelation 7 of the redeemed family of God coming from every single race, tribe, tongue, and family group. That's rooted in the promises of God. The point would be this, uh, Roger, that uh, absolutely, I believe that there's no other name given under heaven among men by which we can be saved. But that is not a story of God bless us for and no more. The Lord is redeeming his family from every single people group that have ever sucked oxygen. That should encourage us to live on mission. It should concern us, of course, that in any country where there's far more professing people than those who truly perhaps have saving faith, but the onus is not on me to earn my way in, but to be really clear, do, do I see Jesus plus nothing as the basis of my hope? He is, i.e., God building this giant family that no man can count. It's a fabulous story. It's a powerful story. But each one of us are called to deal with the question, am I trusting in Jesus plus nothing for eternal life? Boy, that's a great way for us to wrap this conversation up because it really does put a button on this and put a put a ribbon on it, I should say, too. Mm. Uh, Dr. Scotty Smith, the book is called First John, Relying on the Love of God. We've got a link for this book up at thebottomlineshow.com. Scotty, thank you for your time and, and for this resource, too. It's a huge, I know Roger, it's going to be a huge help. Great to visit with you today. I envision you sitting under a palm tree or at least seeing one, not just airplanes <laughs> from John Wayne Airport. And I uh, hope you have a fabulous rest of your week and I hope we can visit again sometime time. Boy, I love that conversation. I love this book too, because the book in the Bible, First John, 
is packed full of uh, just helpful information and insight regarding the love of Christ. And then Scotty Smith, Dr. Smith has written a, a great commentary on it called First John, Relying on the Love of God. And we have a link for that book up at thebottomlineshow.com. I mentioned it's a commentary. It's a commentary that is not a huge commentary. So if you're not uh, heavily into exegesis and hermeneutics and things like that, if you're just looking for kind of a good Bible study, uh, just a few easy lessons to go through, But these are powerful principles, especially in a culture right now where the definition of love by the world standards has been changed so radically. Um, On the other side of this break, I'll tell you a a story about that and and the kind of world that we're living in and why it's important to understand not only the love God has for us, but the love that Christians should have for one another. More to come in just a moment as the bottom line continues. You know the old expression, a picture is worth a thousand words. Well, if you're an expectant mom and you go to a pregnancy health center that is in partnership with Preborn, one picture can say way more than that. And that picture I'm talking about is an ultrasound picture. Every donation that goes to Preborn goes to providing ultrasounds for women who are expecting children and they want to know what all of their options are. When you call 833-850-BABY right now, you give a gift of $28 that provides one ultrasound. But if you give a gift toward the purchase of an ultrasound machine, now that's a $15,000 investment, but every ultrasound machine can do 250 ultrasounds per year and lasts a minimum of 10 years. That's 2,500 ultrasounds available to women right now. Think of all the babies, thousands of babies' lives that will be saved by your donation to preborn right now. Call 833-850-BABY. 833-850-BABY. That's 833-850-2229. Make your best donation right now. $50, $100. Maybe you want to give $15,000. It's completely tax deductible. We've had a couple of bottom line listeners step up and do just that. 833-850-BABY. 833-850-BABY. That's 833-850-2229. Call Preborn right now. My thanks again to pastor and author Scotty Smith for the outstanding book on 1 John and the study guide. It's got leader's notes. This would be a great resource, pastors, to use in your church. You know, it's amazing how many people will rely on the love of God and God's equation goes like this. I'm so glad God loves me. The end. You know, I'm so glad that God loves me. The end. God loves me and God loves me. And I'm so, think of the praise songs that we sing in church every Sunday. Be honest. There, God's so good, you are good, 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 oh, you are good, good. We love that. Who doesn't? Who doesn't like being loved? I have a biche poo at home, a bichon freeze with a poodle mix. Uh, I think that's what they told us when we got him as a rescue dog. And he loves to be loved. He loves to be adored. Whoever had him before us trained him to do certain things that would make him look cute so people would give him treats. Between you and me, brothers and sisters, he's the most annoying dog I've ever been around because I don't necessarily need that kind of... Some people do. If, if, if you're looking for that kind of dog, call me after the show. Okay, no, I'm just kidding. I can't get rid of the dog. The family would have a fit. But that love is so conditional. I act like this and then you treat me like that. And you know the thing about Scotty Smith's book that helps us kind of frame this is the love of God. We love because he first loved us. That's in... First John. And when you think about the love of God and what God did for us, the love of God isn't a bunch of hugs that we get, you know, and treats and things like that for being good, quote unquote. It begins with God so loving the world that he gave his only begotten son. Why? Because we're sinners. We're trapped in a sin-soaked world. 
and we need salvation. We need to be delivered from this. We need to reestablish the relationship between God and mankind. And the only way that's going to happen is if the blood of Jesus Christ pays the penalty for our sins. Full stop. So the idea that we can rely on the love of God, not only for our salvation, but for his lordship in our lives, but then we can live the love of God and share that with other people. That's a huge issue. We, we need to be very mindful of the fact that that has to happen in our lives. If it does not happen in our lives, doesn't matter how nice you are, doesn't matter how many community service hours you give, how much money you donate to charity and things of that nature. If the love of God does not dwell in you richly and flow from you freely, then there's gonna be one of those weeping and gnashing of teeth that depart from me, I never knew you. Let God's love saturate you and flow from you freely. That's the bottom line. Scandals are everywhere in every walk of life, but it seems like the scandals that hit the church seem to leave a bit more of a stain. And you have to ask the question, well, why is it that these scandals happen and what can we possibly learn from them? And today here on The Bottom Line Show, author and Ministry Watch President Warren Cole Smith is joining me to talk about a brand new book where he is outlining some of the major, what you call scandals of the church in the United States in the 20th century and how we can learn from their examples. The book is called Faith-Based Fraud, Learning from the Great Religious Scandals of Our Time. We've got a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. Warren Cole Smith, welcome to The Bottom Line Show. Thank you, Roger. Great to be with you. Good to have you here. I, this, is a, this is a good topic because I love how fair you are in the treatment. I mean, obviously, you could have been really sensationalistic and, and tried to get lots of clicks and likes and this, that, and the other thing. But instead, breaking it down, because I know sometimes I'll, I'll make a reference to, well, you know, that Jim Baker thing. And, and some of my younger colleagues will say, who in the world is that? And why does he spell his name with two Ks? So, you know, there, I think there's, there's a certain amount of history that perhaps if we don't learn from it, we're doomed to repeat it. And so I appreciate what you've done here. What was the impetus for you? I mean, you've been around you know, Christians and media for a long time, but what, what led you to say, I've got to put this thing down in a, in a dialogue here that people can actually start having conversations about? Well, I wouldn't say that there was one thing, but probably a number of things. Uh, one of which was, is this that I'm a Christian myself and I, I am old enough to remember when the Jim and Tammy Faye Baker scandal hit, mm -hmm. and I've been covering. I mean, I've been a. I, I work for Ministry Watch right now. I've been with the Colson Center and with World Magazine, so I've been involved in Christian journalism for, you know, really thirty years. And and uh, I've experienced the same thing that you experienced, which is that a lot of young people today have never heard of these scandals, right. and uh, that that go back, you know, into the seventies and eighties. And uh, I just think that, that, as you rightly said, if we don't remember them, if we don't learn from them, we're destined to repeat them. I believe it was Mark Twain who said that history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. Or somebody else said, <laughs> but it echoes. echoes and I yeah. think that there's a lot of truth to that. And I think that for me, you know, Roger, that was the key motivation was not just to tell these stories and, you know, to get clicks on our website or, or sort of salacious and sensational um, aspects of that story out into the public once again to sort of regurgitate. I'm more interested in the lessons. I want to mm -hmm. know how we can restore the credibility of the evangelical church. A lot of our institutions from the law, government, um, had we've lost um, credibility. I mean, if you look at the Gallup yeah. studies about you know, the, the, the credibility and trust in our great institutions, it's at an all-time low, and the church is no different. But what I wanted to do is to say, you know what, I'm not really responsible 
directly for restoring the credibility of government or colleges and universities. But I am a member of the body of Christ, and I Amen. care about that. And so what can we do? What are some lessons we can learn from these great scandals? What are some things that we can do today, right now, to help us recover uh, that credibility and trustworthiness of the church in the public square? Okay, well, the book is called Faith-Based Fraud. So William uh, Warren Cole Smith, how do you define faith-based fraud first and foremost? What were your parameters? Yeah, well, you know, th- there there is this uh, fraud that... Uh, that uh, criminologists and psychologists call affinity fraud. Affinity fraud is whenever you take advantage of a relationship uh, to uh, defraud somebody. It, it might be, you know, Roger, in our relationship that, you know, I want you to do something for me, to give me money, to invest in something, but I don't know you, you don't have a track record with me, but we might know some of the same people, or we might belong to the same club, or we might have gone to the same college. Uh, and so I will traffic on that affinity uh, that, um, that we share in order to try to um, make you believe that I am trustworthy. That's called imputed trust. There's okay. another kind of trust called earned trust, and which is that I actually have interactions with you, that I say I'm going to do something for you, and I actually do it. And over time, maybe months or years, you start to trust me because I've established myself as someone who, who actually honors his word. And um, so affinity fraud is that kind of fraud which depends on imputed trust and not earned trust. And specifically, faith-based fraud is a particular species of affinity fraud, which says that I'm going to take advantage of you because of our shared religion, not Mm. because we went to the same college together or we're both members of the Elks Club or the Kiwanis Club, but we're members of the same church. You know, and I uh, might even say, well, you know, I believe the same things you do about Jesus and about God and about church and about morality and about theology, and that might seduce you into letting your guard down and trusting me more than you should. That's faith-based fraud. Okay, and that's the name of the brand new book from Warren Cole Smith, Faith-Based Fraud, Learning from the Great Religious Scandals of Our Time. We've got a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. And Warren, I was surprised to see that you included a chapter about Charles Ponzi, because that name, I think, is synonymous with scandal and and ripping people off. Uh, Talk about why you would include a, a a chapter about this guy in a book on faith-based fraud. Well, because he's sort of the grandfather of all the frauds of the 20th century. (laughs) I mean, you know, Ponzi schemes were named after him. And uh, I I wanted to start with the story of Charles Ponzi near the beginning of the book. I think it's the first full chapter of the book uh, after the introduction, because um, not only does it allow us to introduce a lot of these concepts like uh, like affinity fraud and imputed trust and earned trust, um, ideas that are important to the frauds that I talk about later in the book. But most people don't realize that that Ponzi's was in many ways a faith-based fraud. He was an Italian Catholic. He was able to infiltrate himself into the Catholic community of Boston. That's where he uh, he he also spent some time in Canada. But his biggest fraud, the one we know him for, uh, took place in Boston among the Irish Catholics and Italian Catholics that were sort of gathered there. And so, really, in a way, Charles Ponzi was the classic fraud, but he was also in a lot of ways the first faith-based fraud. So I thought he was a really good place to start. 
Mm-hmm. Fair enough. And uh, they, of course, some of the scandals we mentioned, the uh, the Baker scandal and the fact that Jim and Tammy Faye literally redefined fraud. How did they how did they take something bad and make it worse? Warren Colesmith. <laughs> well, that's a really good question. You know, uh, Jim and Tammy Baker, I, I also, um, you know, that that's another fraud that took place, you know, in the late 70s and early uh, 80s. At this point, I'm you know, embarrassed to admit that's like 40 years ago. But, uh, you know, I, I wanted to really describe Jim and Tammy Baker in some detail, even though it took place so long ago, because I think they're a good example of a couple, young couple that started out meaning well. They were doing evangelistic crusades uh, around the country as a young married couple. I truly believe in studying their story that they were sincere believers hoping that Jesus would use them in meaningful and powerful ways. But what happened was as their popularity grew, they didn't put in those guardrails, those hedges of protection around them that would kind of keep them honest. And uh, one of the key principles of the book, Roger, is that transparency and accountability are absolutely vital. Mm -hmm. Uh, Even for people that start out well, like I believe Jim and Tammy Faye Baker did, uh, if they don't have those guardrails around them, they can get off the path. They can get off the straight and narrow road. I think that's what happened to Jim and Tammy Faye. I think that's what happened to Ravi Zacharias, mm-hmm. uh, to be honest with you. We we can talk about him later if you want, but that's a scandal that's been in the news lately. If you look at a lot of the really big frauds in the church, these were often not people that started out saying, you know what, I'm going to defraud people. I'm going to take advantage of people. I'm going to abuse people. There were people that really wanted to serve God and serve their, you know, brothers and sisters in Christ and non-Christians as well. But as their popularity grew, uh, they they didn't have those guardrails that they needed. Uh, They didn't have those systems of structure and accountability that they needed. And they started believing their own press. They started thinking, well, God must be blessing me and I can do whatever I want. I can do no wrong. And of course, that is a huge problem whenever you start thinking that way. Yeah, but the the idea that I'm untouchable somehow that it's not going to it's it's not going to get on me. You know, there may be a there may be a smell in the room here, but it's certainly not on the bottom of my shoes. That's uh, something that a, a lot of folks have fallen and succumbed to. I'm talking with Warren Cole Smith today here on the Bottom Line. The book is called Faith Based Fraud. We've got a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. More to come in just a moment as the Bottom Line continues. You can protect against market volatility without investing all your money into bonds. Wilson Financial has simply better alternatives. The last 12 months, there has been almost $1.7 trillion invested in investment-grade bonds. This move to safety locks up money for a long time of guaranteed low returns. Why? Market volatility. Well, my comment is why go with low earnings for a long time when you can get great earnings with a solid real estate-backed investment paying you 6% over the next three years. After three years, you can invest in another option, or you can do what most of our investors do and reinvest in another one of our new exclusive 6% accounts. This strategy gives you the best of both options without settling for many years of low returns. Our 3D Money 6% account pays you great interest while you're not subjecting yourself to market volatility. Call 800-696-9970, 800-696-9970, or visit kbrightradio.com slash Wilson Financial and ask about Dennis Wilson's exclusive real estate-backed 6% investment account. Wilson Financial Services, for simply better alternatives. 
the brand new book from Warren Cole Smith, Faith-Based Fraud, Learning from the Great Religious Scandals of Our Time. We've got a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. It's interesting because there are some things that have impacted the church on the fraud side of the equation that don't always jump out in the headlines to some people. They may not be aware of it. Could you talk about new era philanthropy for just a moment? Because that that's something that people might be anecdotally familiar with, but at the same time realize, okay, well, uh, you know, I'm not sure about who John Bennett is and this foundation and, and how that actually got into people's heads. Yeah, the Foundation for New Era Philanthropy was a um, was an organization that grew up in the late 80s and early 90s. And uh, by a, uh, the the leader of that organization, as you as you just mentioned, is a man named John Bennett. John Bennett was a um, guy that had impeccable credentials in the evangelical world. He had contacts in all of the big Christian organizations of this country. He wasn't sort of wacky or out there in his theology like a Jim and Tammy Faye Baker eventually became. He wasn't one of these prosperity gospel guys. I mean, he Mm -hmm. was, uh, you know, somebody that was kind of on the pretty straight and narrow and and not really that flamboyant or well-known. He didn't have a big media ministry. But um, he said to people that he had an anonymous donor and that anonymous donor would match gifts that you gave uh, for your favorite ministry. So, for example, if I wanted to, and I'm just going to use this as an example, if I wanted to give money uh, to um, uh, Wheaton College, uh, rather than give the money directly to Wheaton, what John Bennett would say is give it to me. Give it to the Foundation for New Era Philanthropy. We will hold your money for 90 days just to make sure that everything is good, and we'll do the due diligence on Wheaton. And, you know, in other words, they 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 actually made themselves out to be folks who were doing a service to the donor. Mm. We'll match it with our anonymous donor's money. And instead of, say, giving $5,000, we'll, in 90 days, present $10,000 to Wheaton. Well, this appealed to people on a lot of levels. Uh, it appealed to the person that wanted to take their $5,000 donation and turn it into $10,000. What's not to like about that? Sure. Uh, John Bennett was able to say, well, my anonymous donor believes what the Bible says, that your left hand shouldn't know what your right hand is doing. So he wants to stay completely anonymous and in the background. So that caused the original donor to kind of say, well, okay, I get it. It's a little unusual, but it's biblical. So I'm going to just go ahead and trust John Bennett. Well, what ended up happening was that John Bennett wasn't giving that money to the uh, ultimate uh, recipients at all, at least after a while. In the early days, he did, and that was how he was able to build some credibility. But eventually, he just ran out of folks to uh, get money from. He had too many people he was supposed to give the money to, and the whole scheme fell apart really just in a matter of weeks, uh, around 1992. Two or ninety three, ninety four, and um, it was the one of the largest scandals in American history at that time. About one hundred and fifty million dollars uh, mm. were uh, involved. Some of the largest Christian organizations in the country ended up um, with egg on their face. If you want to know the truth, sure, sure. and uh, on the front page of the Wall Street Journal, it's a big story at that time. Yeah, it's amazing when you think about this happening because it, it was just plausible enough to not let the left hand know what the right hand doing. And, you know, let's face it. I mean, we're all human beings. And if someone has got an investment strategy that's working and people are making money and they don't know that there's anything wrong with it, 
we'll keep deluding ourselves. I mean, but you have even have a chapter in your book called "We've Seen the Enemy and the Enemy Is Us." Uh, right. Talk for talk for a moment about that that profound lack of self awareness that oftentimes we have in the body of Christ, where we just won't ask the extra questions like, "Hey, this seems too good to be true. Is anybody else wondering if it is too good to be true, like I am?" Yeah, well, that's you know that's a great point. In fact, you used a word that is a really important word for us to uh, pause on just for a minute, Roger, and that's this word of plausibility. Um, that that most of the schemes, most of the frauds that I talk about in the book, you know, you don't look at them and say, "Well, that's just crazy. That just right. is, you know nuts." You look at it and you say, "It well, okay, I can sort of see how that could happen." You know, um, it's just plausible enough to get people to put their guards down, especially if the story is coming from someone that, you know, you think you should trust. Uh, somebody like a John Bennett who um, had all these uh, contacts in the evangelical world. So, yeah, a lot of times the, uh, the the reason we have met the enemy and the enemy is us is because we get a little bit greedy ourselves, whether it's an investment scheme or even a philanthropy scheme. We want it to be true. We want uh, either to make a little bit more money for ourselves or to appear to be a bigger donor than we really are, a bigger sort of, uh, you know, we want to be a bigger man than we really than we really sure. are. And sure. so we will um, believe these stories because they're feeding something in us, some insecurity, some need, some uh, need for power or ego or whatever it might be. And so what? that's the reason that I say, Again, transparency and accountability are absolutely key, and for Christians to ask questions, to ask tough questions, and we provide some of those questions in the book, Faith-Based Fraud. The way I say it, Roger, is this, is that if I ask a great ministry a tough question, that just gives them an opportunity to shine. And if I ask a bad ministry a tough question, then that becomes my red flag. That becomes Uh my warning. So there's no downside to asking tough questions. Uh, donors should ask tough questions. Ministries should welcome tough questions. Amen to that. Warren Cole Smith is my guest today here on The Bottom Line. The book is called Faith-Based Fraud, Learning from the Great Religious Scandals of Our Time. We've got a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com, and there are so many uh, of these scandals that you identify and uh, kind of draw our attention to, especially uh, in light of, uh, well, just kind of the way the world works. I and mean, you can read about Willow Creek and some other churches that are in there. I wanted to conclude, though, give you ample time here, uh, Warren, to talk about this one. Uh, there's a guy by the name of Mark Driscoll, some of our listeners may be familiar with, some may not, who saw great success in ministry, and then he saw it all kind of fall apart based on something that if you've listened to any of our Bottom Line Show affiliates for years, this kind of thing happens all the time. And that is the ministry says, Pastor so-and-so has a new book, and if you make a donation to the ministry, then we'll send you the book as our way of thanking you for the donation. And it it seems like, you know, when when most ministries do that type of stuff, I've even been a part of a ministry where a book that I co-authored was actually part of that. And I thought, well, that's really cool. The ministry buys it for a discount or whatever. Mark Driscoll took that concept to a whole new level where it moved from that innocent, like you said, Jim and Tammy started out wanting to really do God's work and kind of got caught up in it. Something tells me Mark Driscoll kind of fell in the same category too. Help us understand what led to his downfall, doing something that a lot of ministries do, and it's not a problem, but when he did it, it became problematic. Yeah, well, that's a, it's a great question, and, and you're right. There were a lot of things that led up to that, and, and I would say uh, one of the very first things that led up to it is something that we've already talked about, this notion of accountability. Mark Driscoll's church uh, really 
was uh, had no accountability. It had elders, but the elders in the church were the employees of the church. Hmm. In other words, they weren't independent. Uh, none of them could really go to Mark Driscoll and say, hey, dude, you're not doing this biblically or you're not doing this uh, in a prudent manner or what, whatever it might be, because Mark could fire them. Mark could literally fire them if they mm -hmm. said something to him that attempted to hold him accountable. So that was really the first problem is this idea of an, uh, of an employee-led or a staff-led church. And, and by the way, Roger, this is fairly common. Uh, you look around some of the big megachurches in this country, uh, and you'll see that that's unfortunately much more common than you can imagine. I just, and, and especially in a lot of uh, ministries, I'm doing a story right now on a radio station down in Florida where the board of directors are all employees. They're not going to speak mm. up to the president because they all report to the president. Right. And right. Um, so unfortunately, this is becoming a common phenomenon. And because it happened at Mars Hill Church, it kind of let Mark do whatever it was that he wanted to do. He ended up writing these books, one in particular called Real Marriage. And they, th th it is not, as you said, illegal or unethical to offer books as a premium. We do it at Ministry Watch, but there are some rules that you have to follow. You have to buy the book at the lowest possible rate. The author can't get a royalty whenever you do that. These are all via, these are all standards that are set forth by the Evangelical Council for Financial Accountability. Mm -hmm. But what Mars Hill did instead was actually hire a company called Results Source to uh, then, in turn, hire contractors that were all over the country, give them gift cards like Visa gift cards or Amazon gift cards or Barnes & Noble gift cards, and instruct all of these people to buy the books at full retail price from the retailers. It created the illusion that Mark Driscoll's book had made the bestseller list. Mm. And it, they ended up spending well over $200,000 in this effort. It did put Mark's book on the on the bestseller list, but it was obviously done in, in an unethical way. It might even have been illegal, though he was never really charged with any illegality. And it was just one of a number of things that happened um, that uh, caused... Um, uh, public scrutiny. I actually wrote the stories that when I was at World Magazine mm. about the book buying scandal, um, but there were other things as well. The Acts 29 network fire, basically uh, asked him to leave leadership. The church asked him to take a sabbatical because of some um, leadership issues there within the church. A number of things happened in quick succession. The bottom line is that Mark Driscoll uh, had to resign from Mars Hill Church, and the church itself ultimately completely imploded. Mars Hill Church is no more. And keep in mind, Roger, that was one of the largest churches in the country. And yes. literally within a matter of months, it was out of business because of all of these scandals associated with Mark Driscoll. It's incredible to think about, but you again, you mentioned that tiny little flipping of the switch. It's one thing for pastor writes a book, has a radio or television ministry. The church can buy the books. Even if they don't have the ministries, they can sell them at their churches and do whatever. But the key is, it's the lowest price, and the pastor doesn't profit off of those books. And as long as you play by those rules, it's fine. 
the way that Mars Hill did it. I mean, you can see there's illegality all over the place, but without any sort of accountability, as Warren Cole Smith has been telling us. What's that formula again, Marcus? We're wrapping things up. How do we keep a faith-based fraud from infiltrating our churches? Uh, You had a simple formula earlier. Yeah, transparency and accountability. In other words, be completely open with your finances and with your governance and with everything associated with that and create good structures of accountability. If you've got a board, they should be independent. If you've got elders and deacons, They should not be employees of the church. They should be completely independent so that they will actually tell the truth to people in leadership without having to worry about financial retribution. As a former non-voting member of my church council, because I was on pastoral staff, I wholeheartedly approve everything Warren Goldsmith said about the fact that you want to make sure that there is real accountability and that transparency as well. Uh, Warren Goldsmith uh, with Ministry Watch Ministries. The book is called Faith-Based Fraud, Learning from the Great Religious Scandals of our time. We've got a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. Warren, great to connect with you again, and uh, congratulations on the book. I'm sure it's going to help a lot of churches and a lot of ministries uh, look at their organizations a lot differently and hopefully in a more healthy manner. Thanks for being with me today here on The Bottom Line. You bet. Thank you. It's great to be on with you, Roger. Well, this is a helpful book, and Warren, I appreciate the fact that you've done so much to read up on these scandals, let us know uh, what actually happened with them, and is there a way that we can learn from the great religious scandals of our time. Warren Cole Smith's new book is called Faith-Based Fraud. We have a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. More to come in just a moment as The Bottom Line continues. You know, I'll never forget the moment I met my grandson, Isaac. It actually wasn't in the delivery room. That was the first time I held him. But the first time I actually met Isaac was when I went with his mother to her ultrasound appointment, and the ultrasound technician showed us a picture of that eight-week-old baby in the womb. Uh, you know, I encourage you to contact Preborn right now and make a donation to provide that same experience for another family. Maybe there's someone in your family who's expecting a child right now. They've had the ultrasound. You've seen the picture. You've heard the heartbeat, and you think, wow, how can I bless someone else. Studies show that 83% of the women who go to a preborn clinic and see that ultrasound either choose to become mothers and raise the children on their own or release the child for adoption. It cuts the risk of it cuts the rate of abortion dramatically. But your donations are necessary right now to get more ultrasound machines into preborn health clinics. Give a gift online when you go to kbrightradio.com and click the banner that says preborn. Cute little baby there wrapped up in a blanket. Or give a gift over the phone. 833-850-BABY, 833-850-BABY, that's 833-850-2229. Call Preborn, make a donation. Every ultrasound machine could do 250 ultrasounds per year, so give a gift right now. My thanks again to Warren Cole Smith for a great conversation on his book called Faith-Based Fraud, Learning from the Great Religious Scandals of Our Time. A link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com makes a great Christmas gift. Uh, that's I'm kind of making fun of the uh, the cover here. But there is a lot to learn. Quite frankly, brothers and sisters, if we don't learn from the past, we will repeat it. If we don't learn from our sin, Scripture tells us just like a dog returns to its vomit, we're going to keep doing that. But the hallmark of people of the Christian faith, true Christian faith, is repentance and forgiveness. If someone truly repents of their sin, we should be just and fair and forgive them of their sin. But when we see people who are using God's word inappropriately, misusing it, I guess I should say, and you look at the scandals that we've seen with faith-based fraud, at some point we have to say, wait, God gave us eyes to see and ears to hear. He gave us discernment. 
There's the Holy Spirit living in our heart that says, is it right for us to invest in this or to buy this or to uh, build this type of project? And my heart breaks for people who get deceived by faith-based fraud. But at the end of the day, ultimately, we're the ones who have to stand accountable for our actions, our thoughts, words, and deeds. Faith-Based Fraud by Warren Cole Smith, learning from the great religious scandals of our time, is up at thebottomlineshow.com. Give thanks to God for the goodness that he has bestowed upon us individually, as families, as churches, and in this nation. And may we never forget the fact that God gives us two kingdoms to serve, the temporal one here on earth and the eternal one in heaven, and may his will be done in both. And that's The Bottom Line.